morning, Cornerstone. I hope you're doing well. It's wonderful to worship God with you. Last time I was here, I was in uh, the book of Acts. I was in Acts chapter 4, and we covered uh, the early character of the early church, the, the unity of the early church. And if you've kept up in the book of Acts, if you've been reading Acts recently, you would know that in Acts 5, the church, the great unity that they have is threatened by Ananias and Sapphira and their deception, and later a dispute over the benevolence ministry of the church. In Acts 6, the apostles appoint what many believe to be deacons to handle these practical church matters. Would you turn this morning to Acts 8? Acts 8. After Acts 6, we see Stephen uh, and Philip were appointed in Acts 6. We see Stephen's uh, ministry and martyrdom. And then in Acts 8, at the beginning, we see that Philip is sent to proclaim the gospel to Samaria. Samaria experiences profound revival. Great crowds are coming to faith in Christ. Yet from this triumphant scene, Philip is called to an, a, different mis, a different mission entirely. So let's pick up in verse 26 of chapter 8 of Acts, and we'll read through verse 35. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was, re and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Would you pray once more with me? Father, we need to hear you from you, from your word this morning, would you help us? Father, we ask that in the preaching of your word, Christ would be exalted, that we sinners would be humbled, and Lord, that we would be called and promote holiness and newness of life. Father, please enlarge our soul's prosperity this morning with the warmth of the gospel. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have ever attended a high school or undergraduate philosophy class, you have likely at some point pondered what are considered to be the ultimate questions of life. Who am I? How did I get here? What am I? And why am I here? The aim of that particular question of why is essentially designed to discern what is the meaning of life. And so... Famous philosophers like 
Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus, they've dedicated much of their lives to perceive the purpose of life. And ever since then, forests of trees have been burned and used for paper and oceans of ink have been spent to answer the question of why mankind exists. Well, friends, I'm not here to answer that question today. I'm not here to answer the question of, of why mankind exists. What is the great purpose of life? Nevertheless, I do believe it's fundamental and healthy for Christian people to ask themselves very fundamental questions when they gather. And I want us to ask ourselves this morning, right now, why are we here? Why are we here? Why are you here, Christian? Why is it that this gathering of Cornerstone Baptist Church is here, gathered today on May 9th, 2021, in the year of our Lord? Well, there are many answers I hope you could offer to that question. But I would say that we are here because of the good news of Jesus. We are here because of the good news of Jesus. We are here because there is good news about Jesus. And we are here because we have heard the good news of Jesus. And we are here to celebrate the good news of Jesus. And we are here in order that we would proclaim the good news of Jesus. Surely we have heard good news. The account I read a moment ago is of Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian. And there's so much we can glean from this encounter. We, there's so much we could glean from this scene. But I want us to focus on verse 35. That's where I want us to focus this morning, solely on verse 35. But before I do, we need to meet the two main characters of this narrative in the book of Acts. So first, asking the question, who is Philip? Who is Philip? What can we know about Philip from the scriptures? Well, first, Philip, as a man, he was one of the early disciples. He was one of the early disciples of the early church. So he's not one of the disciples of Jesus in the ministry, in Jesus' ministry, but he's one of the early converts that we see in the book of Acts. He likely, he probably was converted in one of the sermons that we see in Acts 2 and Acts 3. He was one of the early disciples of the early church. What else do we know about him? Well, secondly... In Acts 6, we see that Philip was trusted as one of the seven. He was one of the seven, what many of us believe to be deacons, while we have the office of deacon today. He was chosen as one to handle practical concerns of the church. But here we must not be confused. Philip, along with Stephen and the other five, they were not solely picked based off of executive acumen or practical gifts. Rather, Philip and the rest of the seven were chosen based on what Luke says, that they were full of spirit, full of the spirit and wisdom. Philip was known in the early church as one who was full of faith. He was known as one who was pious, who was righteous, who walked closely to God, and his progress in godliness was evident to all. Thirdly, and lastly, we know about Philip is he was an evangelist. He's actually later referred to in Acts as Philip the Evangelist. And though he was originally called to wait tables and address practical concerns, Philip, like Stephen, boldly proclaimed the gospel to great crowds. And unlike Stephen, while Stephen is swiftly rejected and killed by his hearers, Philip is received by the Samaritans. Luke says that the crowds paid close attention to what he said, and many came to faith. Samaria in those days was a place of profound revival, profound work and evidence of the power of God. We would expect Philip wouldn't be leaving anytime soon. But the Lord had different plans for Philip. 
South of Samaria, on a lonely desert road, God had divinely scheduled an appointment between Philip and an African nobleman. You see, up to this point in the narrative of Acts, we've only seen great crowds come to faith. We've only seen these triumphant multitudes coming to great faith in Christ. But we've seen no individual conversations. We've seen no individual discourses and evangelistic encounters. But this, in Acts 8, verses 26 through 40, is the first of several we will see in the book of Acts. And I think here, Philip the evangelist, we have something of a paradigm for evangelists. A Christian, should you want to grow in evangelism, learn from Philip. Well, so much for Philip, what do we know about the Ethiopian? First, the Ethiopian, he was a nobleman. In particular, he was a councilman and treasurer of the Queen of Candace of Ethiopia. And Ethiopia, not that it's important that we know this today, but it's not what we consider to be modern Ethiopia, but it would be what we consider today to be modern Sudan, south of Egypt. Secondly, he was a eunuch. Whether he was a eunuch by birth or by the wicked practice of wicked men, we don't know. But it is worth noting that under the Old Covenant, there were certain privileges deprived of you if you were a eunuch. There were certain rights, there were certain religious privileges that, that you couldn't participate in. You couldn't worship with the assembly as other people could. If You had to sit outside the gathering. And we know this Ethiopian, he would have known this. Because thirdly, he was familiar with Judaism. He was familiar with Judaism. This Ethiopian, we can tell based on context, that he was either himself a Jew who was dispersed to a Gentile land, or he was a Gentile proselyte. So that is to say he was a, a Gentile convert, and he would make his practice to worship in Jerusalem regularly. Nevertheless, though it was his practice to worship in Ju Jerusalem, the Jewish faith had left him completely dissatisfied. Something was missing in his religious experience. Dots were unconnected. Loose ends were untied. There were blanks that were unfilled in his religious experience. And that leads us to the last thing we know about this Ethiopian, and that's he reads his Bible. The Ethiopian read his Bible. What puzzled the Ethiopian? It was his close reading of Scripture. Let's pick up in verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip, Philip to come up and sit with him. And the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? What a question. What a question. What do we have here? Fundamentally, brothers and sisters, what we have here is an unbeliever asking a believer a most important question. We have a seeker seeking truth. We have a puzzled person pressing for resolve. We have an inquirer for asking for religious answers in earnest. And listen, as Christians gather here today, with most of us here are believers, we should be earnestly and eagerly interested in what is Philip the evangelist's reply to this most important question? What does he do? What is the content of his message when he's probed by the sinner about matters of faith and religion? 
My friend, do you want to grow in evangelism? Do you want to know what the news is that must be shared to a perishing world that we prayed for this morning? What is the message my unbelieving neighbor needs? What good news your son or daughter must receive? What message is the message that saves sinners? Please, do you want to know how to share the gospel? Let us sit at the feet of Philip. Let us learn from him. My non-Christian friend, do you want to know how to become a Christian? Do you want to know the message that saves sinners? Learn at the feet of Philip. Brothers and sisters, do we want to know why we're here today? Do we want to know the message, the only name under heaven by which men have been given to be saved? Let us learn at the feet of Philip. We are here because of the gospel, because there is good news about Jesus. Acts 8.35, then Philip opened his mouth. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What was Philip's message? In the time remaining, I want us to answer that question under three headings. I want us to consider first the authority of the message. Secondly, the content of the message. And thirdly, the consistency of the message. Would you consider first with me the authority of the message? First, Acts 8, verse 35 says that the text says that Philip opened up his mouth. He opened up his mouth. This is no casual phrase in the New Testament. This is a phrase in Scripture where the speaker relates words of absolute and utter importance. We read Peter opening his mouth and declaring the things of God to Cornelius in Acts 10. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, right before the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records that Jesus opened up his mouth and taught. Here we see Philip, he does the same thing. He opened up his mouth. What did he say? What would Philip say? What combination of words did Philip arrange to impress the Ethiopian with the gospel? Luke says, beginning with this scripture. Beginning with this scripture. What formed the basis of Philip's message? What formed the basis, the ground of Philip's message? It was God's word. In fact, we can hardly say it was Philip's message, for it was the message of Christ himself. See, friends, Philip was not compelled. He was not compelled to preach his own thoughts. Far from preaching his own fancies and feelings, he began with the only authority that matters, God's holy word. He was, he was an evangelist who was appointed to bear good news of God to the ungodly. He was a herald of a holy word, a messenger of a most important message. He was an ambassador of the almighty God. And as one charged to speak, he didn't speak his own thoughts. He preached the oracles of God. He opened his word. As one charged to preach, he proclaimed the works of God. As one charged to share the good news, he shared the tidings of the living God from his living word. Friends, do you understand this? The Christian faith, Christianity... It's a revealed faith. It's a revealed faith. And though it meets every need of man, it is not man-made. God's word says in Isaiah 54, For thus says the one, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. Friends, do you know this? There is a chasm. There is a chasm that exists between a holy God and a sinful man. God says that Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Friends, the mind of God is inaccessible. His thoughts are impenetrable. This chasm, it is unscalable. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Brothers and sisters, unless God condescends, the silence remains deafening. It remains impenetrable. God must speak. God must offer his word. God must draw near to us. We need him to disclose himself to us. We need him. We need a text. We need a word. We need him to reveal himself through his word. We need him to reveal his son through his word. He continues in Isaiah 55. So shall my word be. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty. But it will, shall accomplish that which I purpose. And, that shall, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Brothers and sisters, we have such a word. God has broken the silence. God has broken the silence. He has condescended to us in his word. He's revealed himself in the scriptures. And we as his people, we ought to hang on every syllable. Cornerstone, we're not here because of the words of men. We're not here because of the words of men. We stand here on the Bible alone. God has written a book. He has spoken through the words of holy men taught by his Holy Spirit. As the Apostle Peter says in his second epistle, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And my friends, as preachers stand before you today, though they themselves are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, so much as they faithfully proclaim God's word, they speak for God. They speak as the oracles of God. We must reverence God's word. We must revere it. We must cherish it. We must know that should we learn to grow, should we see Christ, should we be reconciled to God, it only happens through the word, through the scriptures. It's popular today for people to speak of speaking their truth. They spoke their truth. He got up and spoke his truth. She spoke her truth. I don't like that phrase. I don't like that phrase because it, it implies that the truth is malleable. It implies that the truth is subjective. and It implies that the truth is as varied as there are people in the world. But my friends, though I reject that phrase, I fear there are far too many preachers that are determined to proclaim their own truth. There are far too many men and women who get up in pulpits and try to declare their own thoughts on life. There are countless men filling countless pulpits with an endless desire to preach their own thoughts on life, their own thoughts on people, their own thoughts on the world, with no interest in the things of God, with no interest in the mind of Christ, with no interest on what has God said. Friends, let it not be so with us. Let it not be so with us. Pray for your pastors. We're not here to declare our own truth, my friends. I'm not here to preach my own thoughts and ideas. I'm here to preach the truth, the only truth that matters. God's holy word. And so it was with Philip. What was Philip's authority? It was scripture. Secondly, consider the content of the message. Luke says he told him the good news about Jesus. 
the good news about Jesus. The verb there is huengelisato. It's the word from which we derive our, our word evangelism and, and the gospel, euangelion. This word means to share or declare good news. It's actually sometimes transliterated. Philip, he, he gossiped about Jesus. He told the things of Jesus. Friends, what formed the content of Philip's message? What formed the content? What was the substance? What was the warp and woof of Philip's message? It was the person and work of Jesus. No, we don't have a recording. No, we don't have a timestamp. We don't know how long it took him to say this. No, we don't have a, a script of what he said, but he shared the good news of Jesus, and we don't need to wonder for a second what he said. We don't need to wonder a second for a second about the content, but the substance of what he preached to the Ethiopian. Remember what the Ethiopian was reading. He was reading that great prophecy from Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. He says, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. This was the great prophecy of the suffering servant. And do you remember the Ethiopian's question? Oh, what was his question? He says, does the word of the prophet refer to himself or to someone else? Like, is Isaiah talking about Isaiah? Or is he talking about someone else? And what was Philip's reply? It was a resounding refrain that Isaiah was talking about the latter. Who was the sheep that was led to the slaughter? Who was the lamb that was silent? Who was the one that was oppressed and judged? Who was it that was cut off from the land of the living? Who was it that bore the iniquities of God's people? It was the man, Christ Jesus. He told him the good news. He told him the good news about Jesus. It was, it was the man, Jesus. Jesus himself was the suffering servant. Jesus himself was despised and rejected by men. Jesus was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief that we see in Isaiah. Jesus was despised and esteemed not. He was stricken. He was smitten. He was afflicted. But what was the good news? What was that good news that Philip declared? It was that this Jesus has borne our grief. He has borne our grief. Jesus has carried our sorrows. His was no purposeless suffering. His piercing was for our transgressions. His crushing was for our iniquities. His chastisement has brought us peace, and by his wounds, we as people can be healed. Out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, he is satisfied. For bearing the iniquities of sinners, the Lord Jesus makes many to be counted righteous. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. God has made a way this wasn't purposeless. We don't have to remain in our sins. We can be reconciled to this holy God. There is a bridge that bridges this chasm between us and God. Central to Philip's message was the cross of the Lord Jesus. And Philip knew that this Ethiopian, despite any religious experience, despite any knowledge he had of Judaism and the God of the Bible, he needed to meet Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch needed to meet the Lord. My friends, how do you share the gospel? I hope many of you share the gospel regularly. I hope you have regular encounters with lost people in your life. 
I have a lost friend I've been sharing the gospel with recently. We'll call him John. And uh, John is just self-consciously not a believer. He would say, I'm not a Christian, but he's very interested in religious matters. He's very interested with the Christian faith. But John, he, he tends to want to probe me and ask me and challenge me with, with your prototypical apologetic questions. Like, how can God be holy and just and let suffering happen? Or, or what's up with the Crusades? How can Christians be uh, uh, responsible for such historical evils like the Crusades or slavery or inquisitions? And, and what's the Christian perspective on LGBT issues? And listen, I, I engage with John on all of these things. These are important questions. And Christians, we should, be, we should be ready to answer these questions. But I make it my purpose. I make it my purpose to, to always bring the conversation back to Jesus. Like, John, where are you with Jesus? Do you believe he's the son of God? Do you believe he was made man? Do you believe he died on a Roman cross for, sinners, for, the, for the sake of sinners? Do you believe there's an empty tomb? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Do you believe he's ascended at the right hand of the Father? Do you think he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead? John, what do you, where are you with Jesus? What do you think about Christ? Look, I can talk about those other things. I'll answer those questions. But listen, it's all meaningless if you don't come to Christ. If you don't come to faith. If you don't have a lively attachment to him through belief in his name. Brothers and sisters, we must make it our habit to center our gospel conversations on Jesus. That's so basic. That's so basic, right? But we can so often forget. We can so often be distracted. Sinners must come to grips with whether or not they trust in Christ. Christian, does your evangelistic practice need to get saved? Bring it back to Jesus. Allow me to challenge you here. It's just been my experience that most of us encounter lost people in our life. Most of us have lost people in our life. Uh, it's also been my experience that most Christians will have people in their life, usually close family members, close friends, students, of whom they're uncertain whether they're a believer or not. We have People, you can probably think of them in your life right now. Maybe it's a son, maybe it's a daughter, maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a father, maybe it's a friend or coworker. And you think, if, if somebody pressed you and asked, is John a believer? You couldn't answer with any degree of certainty. You couldn't answer with any degree of certitude. You would be left wondering. No, honestly, I'm just not sure where my daughter is with Christ. Honestly, I'm just not sure where my brother is with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I don't believe we're called to discern the exact faith status of everyone in our lives. I don't think we're called to do that. But I believe we are far too content to merely wonder. We are far too apathetic. These are serious matters. There is nothing more urgent. There is nothing more important. We cannot stay agnostic. We need to settle these matters with our loved ones. We need to settle these matters with people we're not sure about. We need to talk to them like... Man, where are you with Jesus? Like, I just don't know. I look at your life. I need you to know I love you. But, like, I need, to have, I need to have certainty. I need to have some level of conviction. I need you to know where you are with the Lord. Please don't be insulted. Please don't be discouraged. But I just, I have to ask this question. 
What is your relationship with Jesus? Brothers and sisters, I challenge you. Ask them. Talk to them in a winsome way with the mind of Christ. Tell them the good news of Jesus. As sinners face eternity, the only thing that will matter is their relationship with Jesus. What was the content of Philip's message? What was his elevator speech? He shared the message. He told them the good news about Jesus. Consider with me, heading three, the consistency of the message. Would you excuse me? The consistency of the message. How did Philip learn how to share the gospel? How did he learn how to share the truth? Remember, Philip, like most of those in the church at this point, he was relatively a recent convert. He was, he was relatively new to the faith. Now listen, I believe that Philip was especially gifted by God. I believe that he was especially called to the work of an evangelist. But I'm still scratching my head. Where did he learn how to proclaim Jesus? Where did he learn this method of showing Jesus by opening the scriptures of the Old Testament? My friends, he learned this from the apostles who were taught by the risen Christ. He learned from the apostles who were taught by the risen Christ. This method of teaching was the divinely inspired apostolic precedent and pattern of the Christian church. Please turn to Luke 24. To Luke 24. Remember Luke 24, this is the last chapter of Luke. Jesus has died. He's risen. He's walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, and these disciples, they don't recognize him, right? They're walking along. He overhears their conversation. And these disciples, they're just, they're just crestfallen. They are, they are sad. They are distressed. They had some affinity for Jesus, and he had died. Yeah, they've heard about that the tomb was empty, but they say they thought that Jesus was the one. They thought that Jesus was the one who was going to restore Israel to some state of prominence. Do you remember how the Lord replied? The Lord discloses himself to them. Do you remember what he says to them? Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he revealed to them. He revealed himself. He revealed to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Jesus opened up the scriptures to them. Jesus disclosed himself. He was standing right in front of them, but it was more important to the Lord to disclose himself from the scriptures. He opened up their minds to understand the things of God from the Bible. Now, it wasn't the first time he does that in Luke 24. Look at verse 44. He does the same thing with all the disciples. The 11 are gathered. Verse 44. It says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin shall be proclaimed in the name to all the, to the in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Friends, sound familiar? Can you see the remarkable, remarkable consistency of this message? Where do the disciples learn this? They learned it from the Lord. 
They learned it from their master. What did Jesus do? He revealed himself through the scriptures. What did he teach his disciples to do? To reveal Jesus through the scriptures. What did the disciples and the apostles do? Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel, Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. What did they do? What remarkable unity. What consistency. What a message. What did Peter preach? What did John preach? What did Philip? What did Paul? What did, what did, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, before Stephen preach. Sorry. What did Stephen preach? They preached Jesus. They preached Jesus from the scriptures. You see the remarkable unity. This glorious message taught by the apostles who were instructed by Christ. Philip the evangelist had everything he needed to declare the good news of Jesus. But friends, what of us? What of us? What message have we learned? What's the authority of our message? What's the content of our message? And what tradition are we? Brothers and sisters, we are in the great apostolic tradition of the early church. We declare the same good news. As Sunday by Sunday, the scriptures are opened up. We declare to you the things of Christ from the scriptures, just as Philip did in Acts 8. We have the very same marching orders. Their burden is ours. Their work is ours. Their commission is ours. Our task as an outpost of the kingdom of God is to declare the message of the king. He has come. He has done for sinners, he has died and he has risen again for their justification. He's ascended at the right hand of the Father and he will come again. We declare that this great message that through Christ crucified, wicked sinners can have faith. They can experience repentance. They can be saved. Brothers and sisters, have you consider this? As a church of the living Christ, we together share a mandate from our master. And that mandate is to proclaim the risen Christ to a wicked, needy, and perishing world. We all play a task in this. We all play a task in this great commission. I work for a company that has a mission statement. The mission statement for this company is that we will exceed our customers' expectations to maximize the long-term value of the company for its shareholders and working partners. You've noticed I've memorized this statement because I rehearse it often. And I'm taught as an employee of this company that though I might not interact with a customer, though I might never interact with a shareholder, I play a role in this mission. I play a role in this great task. I play a role in this great enterprise that we are incorporated to, to perform. Brothers and sisters, it's the same with the Great Commission. It's the same with the message of Christ. Some of us will have different giftings, but we all play a part. We all play a, a, a part in this glorious task. Yes, some will give themselves especially to matters of prayer. Everybody will pray, but some will give themselves especially to matters of prayer. Some will give themselves to a life of missions. We all must share the Christ to the lost, but some of us will have pronounced evangelistic gifts. I'm not saying you have to choose one thing, but listen, here's my point. As a member of a church, it's incumbent upon every believer to ask, how am I contributing? 
How am I contributing to this glorious enterprising of magnifying Christ to a needy world? Brothers and sisters, there's no excuses. If you don't see yourself in this task, you're probably not a Christian. And you need to lay hold of Christ in faith. You need to turn to him. If you don't see yourself in the mission of Christ, you understand Jesus addressed the whole church. These are our marching orders. We declare Christ to a dying world. I've taken up much of your time, but I want to close with three brief applications. We've considered the authority of the message. We've considered the content of the message. We've considered the consistency of the message. Now, three applications. If it's helpful to you, they all start with R. The three R's. First, Christian, read your Bible. Read your Bible. We should read our Bibles. We should study our Bibles with the express purpose to discern Christ within the Scriptures. To discern Jesus, the Messiah, in the scriptures. I'm just convinced the main reason why Christians have such shallow walks with the Lord, such paltry communion with God, is because they don't pick up their Bibles. They don't read God's word. They have made no habits. They're not disciplined in seeking God's face from his word. And maybe they do read their Bibles occasionally, but it's the, it's the same books or the same chapters. It's the same text. They're listening to the same greatest hits over and over again. And they're malnourished. They're not ready. And they have a poor relationship with Christ because they don't know him that well. My friends, let it not be so with us. We must read the Bible. We must read the scriptures. My friend, should you grow in fellowship with God? Should you grow in evangelism? Should you abide in Christ? Should you mortify sin? Should you bear fruit in the spirit, mature in godliness? None of these, none of these will be accomplished short of a day in, day out, inch by inch, unceasing commitment to God's word. It's what we're called to. And I say a commitment is discern Christ within the pages of scripture. Discern Jesus. Discern the, the, the ark, the great narrative of the Bible. I don't think there's some hidden Jesus in every Old Testament text, but brothers and sisters, Christ is the sum of the scriptures. He is the great refrain. The Bible is packed with covenants, with prophecies, with patterns, with procedures and types, all of them pointing to Christ. And we have seen it is the apostolic precedent and pattern of the Christian church to discern Christ, and to celebrate Christ in the Old Testament, in all of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, let us read our Bibles. Let's richly appreciate Christ as we read Scripture. Secondly, be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Cultivate readiness to share the good news of Jesus to others. Let us be prepared as Philip was to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Can you appreciate Philip's readiness? We've considered his authority. 
We've considered his, his, the content of his message. We've, see, we've seen that he's in keeping with the apostolic tr tradition. But what made him so ready? Friends, you know what the Bible says about Philip in Acts 6? You know why he was chosen to be what we believe to be a deacon? Why he was chosen as one to serve? Is he was known as one who was full of the Spirit. He was known as one who was full of the Spirit and wisdom. Philip was a Psalm 1 man. He didn't walk according to the counsel of the ungodly, but he was a tree. He was like an oak that had deep roots. He abided in God. He walked in unceasing fellowship with the Almighty God, and that made him ready. That made him ready to declare this good news. He was prepared. Robert Murray McShane was a minister in Scotland in the early 19th century. McShane, through McShane and others, God was pleased to visit Scotland with just profound revival. We're talking thousands, thousands coming to faith. And a lot of it was under the leadership and preaching of men like McShane. McShane was known for his piety. He was known for his close walk with God. And he was known for his profound preaching. He would die when he was 29 years old. He was the great, one of the great evangelical lights of his time. What was the secret to his success? Why did God so bless his ministry? His friend Andrew Bonar wrote his memoirs. And in those memoirs, he tries to answer this question of, of why was McShane so fruitful? Why was he so faithful? Why was he so ready? Listen to what he says. He says, McShane did occasionally set apart seasons for special prayer and fasting, occupying the time to set apart exclusively in devotion. But the real secret of his soul's prosperity lay in the daily enlargement of his heart and fellowship with God. And the river deepened as it flowed on to eternity, so that his profiting was evident to all. What was the secret to his success? It was the enlargement of his soul's prosperity with unbroken fellowship with the living God. He cherished his word. He cherished communion with him. He prayed. He was disciplined. And this made him ready. Brothers and sisters, McShane's aren't built overnight. Phillips aren't built overnight. I imagine some of you feel so utterly futile, just so weak in areas of evangelism, so inadequate to declare the things of God to people who need it. Moreover, some of you feel just failures in your walk with God. Like, I want to abide. I want to have a deeper relationship with the Lord. I want to pray like I hear some men pray. But what's going to change that? Friend, McShane's aren't built overnight. Phillips aren't built overnight. My friend, do you want to grow in gospel witness? Do you want to grow in your walk with God? Do you want to be ready? To be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Love God. 
Love God. Abide in Christ. Ponder His mercies. Consider His excellencies. Go to church. Fellowship with God's people. Sink down deeply in communion with Him. And prioritize a life of ceaseless devotion and fellowship with the Lord. Then and only then. Will you be able to cultivate a readiness? Be able to speak out of your, in, your increase. To abound such that you can't help. You can't cease but declare the mercies of God. You can't cease but declare his power. Declare his rich grace and his love for people. Be ready. Be ready to share the good news of Jesus. Thirdly, and lastly, rejoice. Rejoice. Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice. I've endeavored in this message to primarily focus on Philip and his witness to the Ethiopian. But do you remember how the Ethiopian responded? Excuse me. He went on his way rejoicing. Yes, he responded in faith. He received Christ. And he evidenced this faith by, by, by going to the waters of baptism. But look at verse 39. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. This is a familiar scene. This is a scene we see throughout Scripture. This is a scene we see in Luke 24. He was filled with the joy of the Lord. His heart had been strangely warmed by the revealing of Christ. By the revealing of Christ from the scriptures. On that desert road, rivers of water flowed from this African's heart. This was the same joy the disciples experienced in Luke 24 when Jesus opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. There Luke records that they said, did not our hearts burn? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, the same joy. The same joy, the same affection, the same warmth of heart is offered to all of us. who receive the good news of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how are we needy? How do we need to hear from your word? Lord, we need to behold you. Father, we need sight of your son. How is it that your people will change? How is it that your gospel will reach the ends of the earth? Lord, it is from blessed and holy sight of Christ. And a living attachment to him in faith. Lord, that strangely warms, that causes our hearts to rejoice. Father, would your spirit bless the preaching of your word now? Lord, we ask humbly, we ask looking to Christ. Lord, we ask waiting for your leading. May you bless us now, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.